Everywhere you look, from groceries to utilities to gas, prices keep going up. Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin can dramatically help lower your energy costs year-round by replacing drafty windows and doors in as little as six weeks. And now you can save even more by taking advantage of no interest and no down payment for up to 36 months when you order by November 30th. Set your free in-home consultation today at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. See showroom for details on rent celebrity 2023. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. This is the final 20. 20 shows left, including today, December 15th, the last day. We, uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff planned, but um, one day off in between there for Thanksgiving. Otherwise, I am here with you till December 15th. Like the promo that Aaron Purdue says, it, it's it's sort of Wagner Unchained or Wagner Unhinged or, or whatever you want to do because we're, we're going to kind of go out with a bang. Now, I told you this yesterday, Aaron, who's producing the show, I told you this. See, I can do, and, and as you try to craft, craft a spoken word radio show, I, you, you can do all sorts of stuff. We could we could talk politics for three hours a day, five days a week. I, I can do that, and and some that's what some people want to hear. You, we could talk Middle East. We could talk, you know, the economy. All those different types of things. I've always thought it's more interesting to talk about a variety of of things. And inevitably, somebody will say, "Well, why are you talking about that? That's silly." Or, "Why are you talking about that? That's too heavy." So we try to mix it up. But I knew yesterday there was one topic that we would do that would be the one that everybody remembered. And I and and it, it played out because last night I, I went out to dinner with a, a friend of mine um, and uh, we, we were sitting there and he, he had, it, we were having a conversation. He had, his wife had passed away a couple months ago and, um, you know, having been through that seven years ago, you know, you, you just, you, you'd go sit down and you go to talk to people. But so we were in one of my very, very favorite restaurants and we were sitting there and people kept coming up to the, the table and, you know, the, the two things that people were mentioning, very, very kind, is, gee, you know, we, we hear you're retiring, we should have the best in retirement, all that. And um, then the, the overall comment was everybody was mentioning, now we, we had a, did a three-hour show yesterday. We talked about, again, the entire waterfront of different issues, but I knew it. The thing that everybody kept bringing up was the topic we did on shrinkflation in general, but in particular, the fact that the amount of cream that they are putting in the Oreo cookies um, is decreasing. Now, Oreo denies that they are doing that, but everybody says that is just the case. And so for people who thought, oh, that's silly, why do you talk about it? Oh, it's because it's instantly relatable. Everybody or almost everybody has either eaten, eats Oreo cookies or has eaten an Oreo cookie. And you can relate to the fact that now they're cutting back, although they deny it, but, you know, who, who are you going to believe, Oreo or your lion eyes? That's kind of what it boils down to. But everybody wanted to talk about the, the Oreo cookies. The guy I'm with saying, you talked about Oreo cookies? I said, yeah, well, they're shrinking the amount of cream in them. At least that's the allegation. Really? Oh, that those those are the things that really, I think, strike me as being incredibly interesting. And we have a number of those topics on the Friday program today, the kind of stuff that you go, huh, that's kind of interesting. But we start... We start the final Jeopardy answer is 205. 205. That's the final Jeopardy answer. Now, don't, don't call in. 
But I want you to think about the question. I'll just give you a second. The answer is 205. The final Jeopardy answer is 205. What is the question? How many car thefts in the city of Milwaukee thus far this year have been solved or cleared? That, that's the term they use. When the cops solve a case, that they consider it to be cleared. Now, that's not, that's not necessarily the number of people who have been prosecuted successfully. It's just the number of cases where the police say, we have identified who we believe the criminal is. 205. Now, if you're listening to this, you might think, okay, what what does that mean, Jeff? Is that a lot? Is it a little? Because obviously without knowing the total number of car thefts there are, you can't tell, are we getting a handle on the car theft problem? Well, here's the numbers. 205 cases have resulted in an arrest. And again, that's, that's not a conviction. That's not the district attorney's office hasn't plea bargained the case away or declined prosecution or whatever. 205 cases have been arrested. Would you like to guess how many stolen cars there have been in the city of Milwaukee so far? This is the city of Milwaukee so far in 2023. Okay, 205 cases. The number of stolen cars? 4,990. So that, that's, that's as of a couple days ago. So let's round up. 5,000 cars stolen. 205 cases resulting in an arrest. Don't pull out your phones and the calculators. I will do the math for you. That is a clearance rate of 4%. In other words, for every 100 cars that are stolen off the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee. They arrest people responsible for four of them. Let's look at it another way. That means 96 out of every 100 cars that are stolen, the person that stole the car is not caught. Here's um, here's the way WISN Channel 12 reported it. A car is a lifeline for Leslie Norova. That lifeline is now back in her possession after it was stolen while she was delivering packages for Amazon in downtown Milwaukee. Her red Ford Edge was stolen, damaged, and gone for days. I found a condom wrapper over in the corner in the back, she said as she walked around her car. They had blue-colored nail polish over most of the seats. While it was gone, Norova went looking for it, tracking the criminals using her locked credit cards. I hit every gas station. A few days later, police spotted her car. They flipped the lights on and chased it because they saw the yellow tee on the windshield. Police arrested a 24-year-old man and a 21-year-old woman in her stolen case, uh, in her stolen car. Occasionally, it, it goes on and on and on like that. Four percent. Four percent. Okay. So you might say, well, is this an aberration? In 2022, 8,099 cars were stolen, 493 arrests. That is a 6% clearance rate in 2001. In 21, 
10,500 cars were stolen, 271 resulted in arrest. An arrest. That's a clearance rate of 2.5%. Um, in 2020, the clearance rate was 2%. Um, in 2019, the clearance rate was 3%, 3.3%. You get the idea. What's happening is the chances of being your, your car, the person who steals your car, being arrested. And again, that's not prosecuted and convicted. That's that's arrested. That's, I don't know, that's kind of like, well, the, the, the chances are, you know, fill in the blank. It's, it's I mean, you've got a better chance of getting your the person who's stolen your car arrested than winning the lottery, but not necessarily that much. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Look, a 4% clearance rate, arrest rate, when you're talking about 5,000 cars stolen, is appalling. And it has been going on like that for years. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, and I understand there's lots of reasons for this, but when is somebody in the city going to stand up and say this is unacceptable? If this means you need more cops to more vigorously pursue the car thieves and catch them, fine, get them. If this means you need to be more aggressive with putting out bait cars and things like that and arresting people, fine, let's do it. But for anybody who has ever had their car stolen, they will be able to testify the incredible problems it causes. You don't have the car. In many cases, people only have one car, you know, so you have to wrestle with the insurance company. You have to figure out how you're going to get to work the next day, much less dealing with all the the problems and whatever else when your car was gone, when it was taken. A a 4% clearance rate, 4%, 4 out of every 100. If you wonder why so many cars are stolen on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee, the answer is obvious. It's because they can be. Because the bad guys know that there is almost no chance that they are going to be caught. At what point in time do we have a little bit of outrage from elected officials? 855-616-1620. Look, I understand solving homicides has to be a priority. I understand solving the rash of, of armed carjackings has to be a priority. But if you want to talk about a quality of life issue, I'm not sure there is more pressing quality of life issue than the rash of car thefts and the reality that the people who are out there stealing cars know they can do it. And the chances are, if they're caught, they're either one of the unluckiest, you know what's in the world, or they've done something really, really dumb. Four out of every 100 cars stolen. And that's approximately where it's been over the course of the last few years. Doesn't somebody need to stand up and say, we've got to make this a priority? How much longer can a city tolerate this type of lawlessness? 855-616-1620, we discuss. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, it's Jeff Wagner Radio. I sent out a link to this story. I mean, seriously, if you want to understand why so many cars are stolen in Milwaukee, the answer is easy. That is, almost nobody gets caught. Channel 12 had the story. They, they ran the numbers. And it's just, I, I keep repeating this because it is unbelievable. Okay, this year so far, there have been approximately 5,000 cars that were stolen. 5,000. 
Of those 5,000, the police have made 205 arrests. And again, I keep saying that's not prosecutions. That's not convictions. That's just people who were arrested. That's what they call the clearance rate. They've made the arrest. They say their job is done. That translates to 4%. And that is pretty much consistent with the last few years. You know, one year the clearance rate was 6%, one year it was 2%. But that's pretty much average. Put it another way, 96 out of 100 cars that are stolen on the mean streets of Milwaukee, they will never catch the person that did it. And as a couple of our texters are pointing out, of that 4% where people are arrested, I, I wonder how many of those are because the police chased the stolen car and the car, the person running, ended up smashing into a pole or whatever and was arrested as something related to that. My guess, that's a big portion of it. We talk a lot about quality of life things. This, and, and I look, and I understand that there's civic leaders who just absolutely hate it when I talk about this stuff, but where is the outrage? I, I mean, seriously, where are the aldermen calling for more police resources to be put to this, calling for more aggressive prosecutions, calling to make this a priority? Because car theft is a big deal in general, but particularly if you want to talk about something that, that is regressive, and, and regressive means um, something that has has a disproportionate impact on somebody from say a, a lower economic region, lower economic strata. All right, so look, if you're, I, I, I own two cars here, okay, so I don't want to have any cars stolen. But if one of our cars is stolen, all right, it's not the end of the world. I've got automobile insurance. We've got a second car. You know, we we can we can get by. We can figure out how to do it. But for a lot of people, they don't have that luxury. A lot of people, their car is their lifeline. And you come out and the car is gone. And then, you know, okay, how am I going to get to work? How am I going to get the kids to school? How am I going to do my grocery shopping? Um, maybe you've got car insurance, hopefully, but you're wrestling with the insurance companies and all these things. This is a hell of a big deal. It, it is. And the fact that they only catch four out of every 100 should tell you that we're doing a lousy job of this. Where is the mayor? Oh, yeah, the mayor's appalled by all this stuff. Well, Cavalier, get off your butt and start saying, okay, this is what we're going to do to aggressively solve this problem. Where are the aldermen? Thirteen of the 15 members of the Common Council had the audacity to criticize this jury verdict involving the former cop who was acquitted last week. Where are those 13 out of the 15? Why aren't they saying a darn thing about what is going on and how their constituents are being affected on a daily basis by the out-of-control level of car thefts? Okay, it's easy to criticize a jury. Maybe maybe focus on stuff that really, really, really is impacting your community on a daily basis, which is 5,000 car thefts thus far this year and only 250 clearances. 855-616-1620. Jeff, this is embarrassing. Where is the mayor? I'm sure he's appalled. No deterrence until you put some type of fear of getting caught into these thugs. Nothing will change. Um yeah, that's that's the exact issue. Jeff, if the Milwaukee County justice system and John Chisholm continue on this path, vigilante justice will continue to rise. Um, you know, I I don't know. Jeff, Bob Donovan gave up the good fight when the city wouldn't elect him mayor. Seems the majority of people don't care. Well, I think that there is there's certainly an element of this. Jeff, the police are the only ones doing their jobs. Judges and prosecutors treat car theft and related risks like traffic deaths as minor offenses. 
there are no deterrents. Um, no question. Jeff, it's just not losing your car because you'll be able to replace that, which I would say, you know, maybe. Um, but just think of all the personal information and items that are in your car that you don't want to lose. It's a much more serious crime than it's given, um, than it's given attention to. Um, 855-616-1620. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, I had to step away. Is there a stat on the recovery rate? How many cars are found? No, I don't, I don't have that number. And somebody was asking, how does this, can you compare this to other large urban areas? And, and I don't have that comparison. I just know that 4% is appallingly low. But that's because it's not a priority. And this is not an indictment of the cops. I mean, look, and I understand that the cops are busy. It is an indictment, number one, of the fact that we don't have enough cops. Number two, that we don't make car theft a priority. And number three, that we don't hold people accountable. Look, my guess is of the 5,000 cars that were stolen, my guess is there's not 5,000 separate car thieves. My guess is that there's... I, I don't know, a relatively small number of people who are out stealing car after car after car, which is why that if you, you know, really target these people, get get the folks that are stealing the cars and prosecute them, you're going to see a dramatic decline. Because maybe if you if you could get the arrest rate up to 10 or 15 percent, maybe that would reduce the number of car thefts by 25 or 30 percent. Again, because I, I don't think person just steals one car. My guess is that people are doing this all over. Jeff, you're spot on. Four percent is completely unacceptable. We in Milwaukee deserve way better. Well, Here's where I disagree with you, Steve. You deserve you deserve the government you get. And this has been something that's been going on, and the citizens of Milwaukee continue to elect the same people over and over and over again who spend time denouncing jury verdicts after juries have heard all the evidence and then turn a blind eye to the more difficult questions, which is, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to put the resources in? How are we going to improve the quality of life? Um, Jeff? Shouldn't the final Jeopardy answer be, why is car theft that easy to do in Milwaukee? It's an absolutely disgrace to the working taxpayers in Milwaukee. Going to miss you. Been listening since 1999. Well, look, here, here's the, the, the deal. Um, wow. I, Jeff, I am just sitting here shaking my head. Yeah, you should be shaking your head. There's no question about it. Jeff, stolen cars. The politicians aren't having their cars stolen, so it doesn't impact them. I bet you a lot of politicians think it's okay for cars to be stolen so the thief that can't afford a car gets something that they can go to work with. Jeff, until some people vote in someone who really cares, it's absolutely going to continue. Um, Right, right. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, You know, no question at all that's going on here. I just, I, I bring this up because... What happens here, if if people think they can get away with stuff, that encourages them to do this. And look, and I, I've told this story before. When I, when I was chasing drug dealers and stuff, and I was a federal prosecutor, and you, you would get to this situation where after somebody had been convicted, you, you get the pre-sentence report, and, and you'd look back and you'd see their record. And, and what you would see is that generally speaking, now first of all, we're not good enough. Law enforcement, God bless them, they're not good enough to catch the people the first time they commit a crime as a general rule. So if you've 
gotten caught for car theft, like I say, my guess is you've probably stolen 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 cars before you get caught. But then you get caught for car theft. And so then you get put on probation or the charge gets dismissed. Then you do something more serious and more serious and more serious. And it's this escalating sort of thing. It's this whole idea of quality of life. But this idea that car theft isn't significant, well, tell that to the person that's had their car ripped off. Tell it to everybody who lives in certain areas of the city of Milwaukee where you're looking at what's going on with your car insurance, not necessarily because your car has been stolen, because three of your neighbor cars have been stolen. Talk to the business community who notices Gee, you know, this is the problem. We don't have as many people coming down here from the suburbs or because, gee, they don't want to park their cars on the street because after they have a nice meal, they don't want to walk out and find that their car is gone. This is the huge, huge quality of life issue that's out there that's just being ignored. Four percent. Matt in Whitefish Bay. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Sure. I you know, for all the times I've listened to the show, one one subject that I've, I'm really passionate about is the reckless driving in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. That is it's just absolutely insane. I drive down up and down Silver Spring all the time. But you know, here here's the byproduct of these stolen cars. Sure, it gets stolen, but what what happens after it gets stolen? And and there's been time after time where I've seen a car dipping in and out of you know the lanes and whipping around corners. And and yep. my first thought is. That's a stolen car. Yep. You know, um, and and it's it's just you know a piece of this larger pie that has to be addressed. And you know, if we're not considering a a, a stolen car any different than a stolen gun, you know, I we're never going to get to the root of the problem. And and we just don't take it serious enough in in Milwaukee, and it's frustrating. No, Matt. Thanks. You you make an out, you make an outstanding point. I mean, how many of the high speed chases are that they start off with? The police, you know, saw a stolen car. So they go to pull the person over. And, of course, we know because there's very little accountability with that, too. You run from the cops. You run from – so you, you take off. You run. Maybe you get away. Oftentimes, though, you smash up the car, and then you get out on foot and run. Sometimes you hit other cars. Sometimes you kill people. But, you know, this is the, the modus operandi. But, but you're right. It's people running in those stolen cars. If you're cracking down on the car thefts, getting more of the car thieves off the streets, you, you reduce the problem. And let's be honest. I mean, one of one of the reasons that especially a lot of the young punks and the young thugs and the young gangbangers, they steal cars is because it's fun. Let, let's go out. Let's steal somebody's ride. Let's drive it around for two or three hours. Let's go 80 or 90 miles an hour. Let's smash it up. Ha, 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 ha. And then let's, you know, run away on foot. And then let's go find another car to steal. So you're exactly right. While they're out there reckless driving in the stolen car, right, a lot of times it's innocent people who are being victimized there. I'm just saying Four percent is absolutely unacceptable. And what's unacceptable is the mayor of the city of Milwaukee, who's running for reelection with no clue as to how to deal with crime, and all the members of the Common Council who will be running for reelection. Again, it's just this hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil when they've only got a four percent clearance rate. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. All right. This is one of those conversations that you will have over dinner hour. Wisconsin statute, I am looking at as I sit here, 347.38, horns and warning devices. No person shall operate a motor vehicle upon a highway 
unless such motor vehicle is equipped with a horn in good working order and capable of emitting sound audible under normal conditions from a distance of not less than 200 feet. All right, so you got to have a horn on your car. I have always, Aaron, thought that they should put horns on golf carts. You know, you're on the golf, you got that really slow golfer in front of you on the public golf course. Wouldn't it be something if you could, like, hit the horn? Oh, come on, move up. All right, so you, you've got to have a horn on on your car, all right? Here's the other part of the statute. But no person shall at any time use a horn otherwise than as a reasonable warning or make any unnecessary or unreasonably loud or harsh sound by means of a horn or other warning device. So what that means is you've got the horn, but you're only supposed to hit the horn if you're if it's a warning thing. Hey, buddy, you're pulling in front of me. Get out of the way. Okay, that's that's how you're supposed to use it. This statute is similar to statutes they have in 41 states. You've got the horns, got to have a working horn, but you're only supposed to use it for purposes that we would describe horns being intended to. Speed up, slow down, don't cut me off, all those sorts of things. Which brings me to a matter that is now going to the United States Supreme Court. California has a law similar to the law we have in Wisconsin. All right, you're only supposed to use the horn as an automobile warning thing. All right, now think about driving around. How many times have you driven, I don't know, past a, a past a, a car wash? And there's a bunch of kids from the area high school who are going, honk if you, you know, support the car wash. Or maybe, maybe you've driven past a... Um, I, I don't know. There, there's a political candidate who's on a corner, or there's a sign, and there's somebody saying, "Honk if you support, you know, Aaron for Congress," or "Honk." Yeah, you don't want to be a congressperson. Trust me on that one. That's that's just trust me. Okay, but a honk if you support Aaron for Congress, or honk if you're in favor of fill in the blank. I mean, how many times have you seen that? The, you know, you, you honk to show support. All right. Well, here is the story, and I've actually been waiting all day to discuss this with you. All right. So California has this traffic law. There's a woman, her name is Susan Porter, and what happens is, you know, she's driving around one day, 2017, she's driving by a rally that's held outside her congressman's office, 2017, and there's people like waving a sign, et cetera, et cetera, you know, honk if you support this. And so what happens is she starts honking the horn, There's a cop there. She gets pulled over, and she gets cited for violating the statute. She was not using the horn in the fashion that the statute says it is intended to do. Now, this raises all sorts of interesting questions because um, you might remember that during the pandemic, Joe Biden, then running for president, organized drive-in rallies in which she encouraged people to honk if you want to be united again, um, in 2020, a convoy of truckers honked their horns outside the White House in protest as former President Donald Trump was delivering remarks in the Rose Garden. So this is kind of this this common thing where, you know, people are, hey, honk if you support this. And, and people honk. She honked at this rally. It was in San Diego, you know, outside her congressman's office and they, they gave her a citation. The state says horn honking is very loud and distracting by design 
And the restriction has been nearly universally accepted as a means um, to reduce the incidence of vehicular accidents for more than 100 years. So the Supreme Court right now is considering whether or not an ordinance which limits your horn honking to only, uh, again, warning people about whether or not, you know, there's there's a danger on the roadway, whether or not that's unnecessarily impermissible. And whether or not if you, again, pass the rally and you've got the, the high school kids at the car wash saying, honk if you support Cedarburg High School, you know, should it be illegal to do that? Because technically it is. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Should horn honking be constitutionally protected, at least in some circumstances. Now, again, it's one thing if you're sitting there in your driveway and you're just blaring the horn to try to bother your neighbors. That's something That's something else. But if you're driving by and you see, I don't know, the local fire departments raising money for Jerry's kids for muscular dystrophy or whatever, and you honk the horn to support them, or you honk the horn because you see the rally and they're arguing, they're marching for whatever, all right, Should it be against the law to do it? Should you be subject to a ticket and a fine for doing that? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Is this this statute, at least in that case, do you think it's unconstitutional? 855-616-1620. Tell you where I come down on this and we'll discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. Now, keep in mind, lots of communities have have noise ordinances which prevent like making like loud noises and stuff like that at at night or in different sort of things and and that would in general cover excessive horn honkings for for example you know if it's nine o'clock at night and you've got that neighbor that wants to sit in their driveway and just lean on the horn forget about you know the horn honking that would typically be covered by like a noise ordinance just like you couldn't you know play speaker your, your music you know at an unreasonable rate but interestingly, this statute, which parallels the Wisconsin statute, says that, you know, you, you can only honk your horn to use it as as a traffic warning sign. And so that's what this woman is being prosecuted under. Interestingly, of all places, that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is extremely liberal, they upheld the law. They said, look, yeah, we understand that this can have an impact on on expression, but we think that Overall, the the purpose of having horns and the purpose of the statute is to say you use it as as a warning. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Well, she must have been supporting a Republican candidate if that uh, (laughs) Circuit Court of Appeals uh, upheld (laughs) that. Um, I don't know if it should be constitutionally protected, but it's definitely borderline ridiculous to make a law against it. most people do use it only in traffic. Um, you know, they, they usually do it to show their approval infrequently. Um, it's, you know, right. maybe during election season. But I can count on probably one hand how many times I've done it in five years. Um, and so I just don't think there should be a law against it. You know, it sounds like almost ridiculous to say it should be constitutionally protected because there shouldn't be a law against it in the first place. Right. Yeah, thanks for calling. I mean, see, because the argument is it's a form of, 
of expression. The, the argument would be, okay, if I'm driving past the, the demonstration and I want to support it, can, can I get out of my car and could I yell, you go, or, or right, could you do that? I think everybody would argue that that's constitutionally protected. It's a form of, of your free speech. Now, um, in the case, is that any different, really, in that context, from by honking the horn, is it any different from yelling? See, see, here's the thing, I, and this is this is where you get into these issues. Do I think this woman should have been cited in this particular case? The answer is absolutely not. Do I think that that means that somebody should just be able to lay on the horn? Well, of, of course not. That can be a nuisance. One of my uh, one of the texters was saying, "Hey, he remembers some demonstrations in in Woke Woke Tosa a couple years ago, where you had these people driving through the streets of Wauwatosa, in, you know, late at night with lights flashing and horns blaring and things like that." Well, I, I think that there needs to be some limits, and I think you can put time and place limitations. But to me, it's not. It shouldn't necessarily be focused on the horn. It should be focused on on the noise that you're making. And, and yeah, the idea of people like without a permit blasting through residential neighborhoods at 10 o'clock at night and blaring speakers or honking horns or whatever or chanting or whatever yeah I, I think communities can and should be able to limit that having said that though making the decision to try to cite somebody because she's driving past this particular protest or whatever and she honks the horn a couple times and then moves on it's a show of support to me that is an overreach, and it does kind of make me wonder, you know, what's going on with the, the local police department that you would choose this particular fight to make? I mean, it's one thing, again, if you're just driving through the city, if you're driving up Wisconsin Avenue and you're just blaring your car horn, you know, because you think it's fun to do that, I understand, and I don't think you should be able to do it. But on the other hand, a couple taps on the horn to show that you support whatever the cause is or that, hey, I'm with you, kids. Go ahead with the car wash. To cite somebody for that, I think, is absolutely ridiculous. And this is how these cases, it's a classic example of making a federal case out of something because if if you hadn't have issued the ticket in the first place, this issue would have never come up. But yet you had, I think in this case, an overzealous police officer who technically says, okay, this is what the law is. You you honked in support of this protest. Boom, you know, we're going to give you the ticket. Okay, this is one where, where maybe a little bit of discretion would have been well intended. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. I know I have annoyed a couple of you over the, you know, last... Well, actually a year or two, because while I think the Biden administration, I think Joe Biden has been a disastrous president, I I think his handling of the crisis in Ukraine has been appropriate. And I've liked a lot of the things he said with regard to, you know, Israel, although he's clearly getting cold feet as Israel continues the the job of eliminating Hamas. So, I, I mean, credit where credit is due. Part of the problem, though, and it goes back to Barack Obama, but it's also been carried out with Joe Biden is the way we have treated Iran. And under the radar in the last couple of days, we, the United States has unfrozen $10 billion, which is going to be going to Iran. Yes, the same Iran, which has been arming militants and supporting proxies that have been attacking the United States. The Wall Street Journal talks about this. After the October 7th rampage by Hamas, which is armed and funded by Iran, many Americans wanted to know, would President Biden still release $6 billion to Tehran? All six Senate Democrats up for re-election in competitive states joined Republicans in calling on the president to freeze the money. 
Under pressure, the White House relented, signaling it will block the $6 billion for now, but not evident, evidently not because it's changed its mind on the wisdom of financing Iran. On Tuesday, the State Department reissued a sanctions waiver that gives Iran access to more than $10 billion. The waiver, first issued in July and now renewed for another four months, allows Iran access to revenue from Iran's electricity shipments to Iraq. The State Department says it's necessary to keep the lights on in Baghdad. That oil-rich Iraq remains dependent on Iran for gas and electricity is its own scandal, but the excuse doesn't wash. The July waiver was part of an unwritten nuclear agreement with Iran. Giving Iran access to these billions could never pass Congress, so Mr. Biden ignored it. The idea was to quiet the region until after the 2024 U.S. election. We're going to give Iran whatever it wants until I get reelected. How little peace the money is brought is clear. Even on the nuclear front, new United Nations inspector reports show that Iran's stockpile of highly enriched uranium continues to grow. Reuters reported Wednesday Iran now has enough for three nuclear bombs. After October 7th, the White House was quick to distance Iran from the attack. But Israel has since faced thousands of rocket attacks by Iranian proxies on five fronts. Um, Since October 17th, Iranian proxies have also carried out 56 attacks and counting on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, injuring 59. In other words, Iran has been attacking Americans on average twice a day for a month. Um, And again, it, it then goes on to talk about how by allowing this money to be freed up, what happens is that Iran can translate the money, they can take it into euros, and then what they can do is they freed up all sorts of money to support terrorism. Iran sends some $700 million to Hezbollah and at least $100 million to Palestinian terrorists annually. So this is, again, one of of the ironies, and and it's one of the problems that we have in the Middle East, because the Obama administration and the Biden administration, even to a greater extent, has failed to want to confront the, the real problem in the Middle East, which is the fact that you have a rogue nation, Iran, which is acting as, I don't know, they're there to stir the pot. So Hezbollah needs to be financed, Iran will do it. Um, you've got Hamas that needs to be financed, Iran will do it. And that that's what's going on here. And the fact that you know we have the ability to freeze money, which you know will be used either directly or indirectly to fund terrorist activities, including terrorist activities which are launched at the United States. The fact that we would even consider allowing billions of dollars of revenue to flow to this particular country, knowing, like I say, that at least a portion of this is going to go directly or indirectly to fund terrorism attacks against Israel and against our interests in the United States and against us, our troops, etc., is absolutely insane. The sooner Joe Biden wakes up and recognizes that Iran is a rogue state and what we need to do is be mobilizing the countries in the Middle East to essentially excommunicate Iran instead of giving them billions of dollars. The moment that happens, the safer the region's going to be and the safer the world is going to be. All right, when we come back, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the next hour of the program. So she lied. Does it matter? The kids don't want the house and numbers on newspapers.
Um, it's all really, really interesting. Stick around. The Wagner Show continues after the top of the hour news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. A lot of people watching on our YouTube channel. You can go to WTMJ.com, you go YouTube, and then put in WTMJ, or you go to WTMJ.com and hit the watch live thing. I, I think there's just people legitimately, I've been threatening to have this happen for a long time. I think people are legitimately saying, okay, in the last like three or four weeks, the guy's on the air. Is his head really going to explode? And, and we want to be able to watch it. So you can check that out. I, I sent out, if you follow me on Twitter, it's, it's Jeff Wagner Radio. And um, I, I guess, see, I've always thought that if I'm trying to bring somebody around to my cause, the last thing you want to do is alienate people who might otherwise be sympathetic to you. Now, again, back in the day, I used to get a lot of heat from the, the pro-life community because there used to be abortion clinics. I don't want to say all over the area, but there were abortion clinics. And what would happen is you would have a number of members of the pro-life community. And, and what they would do is they would go to protest outside the abortion clinics. And sometimes they would chain themselves to the door. Other times they would walk around with pictures of aborted fetuses and, and they'd go down there at rush hour traffic or they do that. They'd hang over freeway overpasses. And, and what happened is there were, you know, a lot of people that were driving around that had their kids in the car or whatever who were sympathetic to the pro-life cause, but were turned off by this tactic. And I remember we would discuss it and I, people would say, Oh, you know, you got to understand that this is the only way for us to get our message across. And my response was, you know, alienating people who might be sympathetic to you isn't the way to win hearts and minds. And we would have that, that conversation. But I've always believed that if you, it's one thing to have a protest. It's another thing to have a protest where you become such a pain in the you know where that people who might otherwise, like I say, be sympathetic are turned off to you. Which brings me to something that happened yesterday. Now, if you've ever been out to the Bay Area in California, you've got Oakland and you've got San Francisco. And the there's a big bridge. It's the Bay Bridge that connects Oakland and San Francisco. And so you have people who live in Oakland who need to travel to San Francisco to work and, and vice versa. So this is this huge bridge. And I mean, you can they've got the they've got the subway. It's not the subway. They call it the BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit that goes under the, the water. But otherwise, if you're driving or you're taking mass transit um, other than the, the subway, you're driving across this bridge. So you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who rely on this. So, I mean, right now you've got this conference that's been going on in, in San Francisco over the course of, you know, the last week. You had the, pre the, the premier of China that was there, and, you know, Biden was out there as well. So what happened is the Arab Resource and Organizing Center decided that they wanted to protest they wanted to, they're demanding a ceasefire and they're saying that Joe Biden has done a lousy job with trying to reign in Israel in their response to the Hamas attacks. Okay, so you can agree with them or disagree with them, but here's what they did. They had hundreds of people in a coordinated effort that apparently all together pulled on at the height of morning rush hour, like 7.45 a.m., pulled on to the, the Bay Bridge and stopped their cars 
going both ways. So they've now blocked traffic. Then what they did is they took their car keys and they threw them over the bridge into the water. So if you arrest them, you, you can't, you can't just drive their cars off. So you have to have tow trucks. Then on top of that, what they did is they did something called the, um, they call this the sleeping dragon maneuver, which is as they are chanting free Palestine and we want justice, they handcuff, they handcuff themselves together with PVC pipe. Um, and this is a move that makes it hard for police to cut off their, their cuffs. Um, so you have, again, cars that are abandoned, essentially. I mean, they're, they're left on there, and the car keys are thrown into the water, so they can't easily be removed. And then you have all these idiots who have now you know, handcuffed themselves and chained themselves essentially to each other. Then a number of protesters lie in body bags with um, fake blood smeared on them, and they, again, ignore responses to disperse. So they make it as difficult as they possibly can for the police to clear off this demonstration. The effect is you have thousands and thousands of people who use the Bay Bridge to commute who effectively weren't able to get to work till noon or one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon. And again, I, I raise this this question for, okay, what do you think that you are accomplishing? Because again, my guess is if you have people that are pro-Israel, all right, well, they're, they're not they're not going to be on your side because you've decided to chain yourselves together and, and stall you know, traffic and make it difficult for tens of thousands of people to get to work. Because you're not going to bring them around your point. And if you've got somebody who is otherwise sympathetic to perhaps the you know, pro-Palestinian cause, but, you know, maybe they're kind of on the fence or they don't have this issue, all they're going to know is they weren't able to get to work in the morning because a bunch of lunatics blocked the bridge, threw their car keys into the water, and then chained themselves together, making it impossible for you to get where you're going. My only point is, if you're trying to win hearts and minds, huh, I don't think this is the best way to go about it. I mean, morons on the bridge, no question about it. Okay, a couple weeks ago, we had a conversation that I still people still talk about, about stuff. And, and we were about how we have accumulated all all this stuff. One of the big let me back into this topic we're going to discuss today. One of the the big businesses in America today is the self storage business because we all have stuff that we don't think that we can part with. So we rent storage lockers all over. And and one of the the sort of I don't know that it's even a secret is that a lot of times people put their stuff in these storage lockers, and then they pretty much forget about it. And in many cases, the the fees that they end up paying to the storage company every month, quickly, you, you let it sit there for six months or a year or two years or three years or whatever, and quickly, the, the amount of money that you are paying to the storage company quickly exceeds the value of, of the stuff. And a lot of times... How can I say this? A lot of times, it's really just crap. <laughs> you know, that's just what it is. It's really just crap. I mean, you know, it, it's you know, every once in a while you might find something really valuable, but it's really just stuff that you oh maybe there's going to be some sentimental value or what I'm going to use of it, and, and that's why the storage, the self service storage business, is just taken off. One of the other um, secrets about this is there there's incredible competition to get you 
to get you to use a self-storage place because people, once you make that decision, people rarely move their stuff. So if you rent a self-storage place and let's say you're paying $20 a month, all right, and, and you put your stuff in there, what happens is if they raise it to $25 or $30 the next year, people rarely go and move their stuff to another place. So once you're there, they don't force you to be there, but just it's like, oh, I got all this crap there. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to move my crap to another place. And so we were, we were having this conversation about stuff and, and things like that. But self-storage is a big thing. And, and what got me started on it is because the truth of the matter nowadays is grandparents, the reality is your kids don't want your stuff. And your grandkids sure don't want your stuff. And mom and dad, the, the truth is, other than, you know, unless you've got something that's really, really valuable or you've got something that is, has incredible, incredible sentimental value, as a general rule, your kids don't want your stuff. So if you're in your 60s and, you know, you've got your living room furniture, okay, your kids don't want your living room furniture. Your kids probably have their own living room furniture, and what are they going to do with, with your stuff? And I understand you might love your stuff, but the kids, it's, they've got their own things. And, and this is just... It's kind of the reality. It's one of the reasons why I always preach one of the big things, gifts that you can give grandparents that you can give your kids. And this comes from my perspective of having to, when my, my mom got sick and my, my dad couldn't take care of her and they had to leave their house. I mean, that the house was just, that I grew up in, was just full to the brim with stuff. And having to deal with the stuff continues. I have, still have nightmares about that. And it's not an uncommon sort of experience. So I've always believed that one of the, the big gifts you can give if, you know, your kids is take care of the stuff. Anybody want my stuff? You know, is there stuff here that you want? Fine. But, you know, don't make your kids feel bad if they don't want, you know, your, your, the, the furniture you've had in the den for the last 20 years. I mean, they just, they just don't want it. Don't make your kids feel bad if you've got the china that was passed down from your great grandma, but they don't use china anymore. Now, maybe they want it, but most people don't. So that's one of my messages. What about stuff? There's a story in the Washington Post, though, that is a follow-up on this, and it's the ultimate stuff thing. The question is, mom and dad, if your kids don't want your house, should they have to live in it? All right, here's the story. Our kids don't want our paid-off house. While I was initially upset, I guess I'm okay with our three children selling our house after we're gone. My husband and I are updating our estate plan. Our eldest daughter, now 28, will manage our affairs in the event we become incapacitated, can't handle our finances, and pass away. Our will describes how assets will be distributed, what kind of medical care we want, etc., Etc. So we're planning this. Okay, so then the story goes on to say, okay, so here's where the controversy occurred. You know, we're, we have a two-story colonial home. The house was paid off before my husband's retirement. Okay, getting that debt off our backs fulfilled a long-time desire to keep the house in the family with no mortgage. In the home, we welcomed relatives who needed a place to recuperate financially. It's the central location for our extended family gatherings during the holidays, birthdays, and college graduations. This is mom writing. We envisioned at least one of our children, who are all in their 20s, moving into the home once we were gone. Selling it was not part of our plan. Well, okay, so their oldest daughter who's handling this says, Mom, I'm selling the house. 
Mom says, uh, no, you're not. It's it's our house. It's our choice. I explained to her again, because we've talked about this numerous times, that people need to hold on to their homes. Um, and then it, it goes on, and she, she happens to be black, so she's talking about, like, the black home ownership rate and things like that. But she says, look, here, here's the deal. I mean, we we envision this house staying in the family, and we want, if not you, we want one of your other siblings to keep the house. We want this to be the place where, you know, people can continue to gather for the next several generations. You will not sell our home, I told my daughter. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, we, we all we all love our house. We all love our stuff. But this lady, very, very invested in it, said, look, I'm, I, I want to leave this to you guys, but I want to leave it to you with the understanding that somebody is going to live here. Are the kids being ungrateful if they say, Mom, once you're gone, we're, we're selling this? 855-616-1620. Is that a reasonable request for a parent to make? I want to leave you the house, but I want you to promise that you're not going to sell it. 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, here, here's the deal. Mom has, has the family house. Three, sib- three kids. She has the family house. Uh, her and her husband just paid it off. So mom is doing estate planning, talking to the kids. Says, "Here's the deal. I, I, I want to. When we die, you are not to sell the house." And the oldest daughter says, "We don't. We don't want that. We don't want to keep the house. I refuse to allow you to sell the house." And I mean, there, there's ways that theoretically you could do that. You could put it in trust. There's ways to do it. And the daughter's saying, "We, we don't want the house. This is dumb. You know, this, this house." I want one of you to live in the house. I want this to be the house where former for future generations gather. Is that a reasonable request? 855-616-1620. Jeff, it isn't reasonable. To try to control things once you're dead is and gone is a lesson in futility. Why should your children be burdened with trying to make you happy once you're um once you're dead? Jeff, they didn't pass on the financial advice early enough. Hanging on to property is a good strategy, but most people don't think ahead enough to understand that it's a strategy for their needs. Most people want the money immediately. Um, I would much rather not know what to do with the house than sell it earlier than I should. Well, nobody's saying that they have to sell it, but I guess my point is you you got three kids who who don't want What if they don't want it? They've all got their, their own houses. What if... I don't know. The house has huge maintenance costs, and, and the kids aren't in a position to do that. What if nobody lives in the area anymore? I mean, why would you try to control this from beyond the grave? 855-616-1620. Jim, Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, just traveling through, I, I'm estate planning now. I'm young, not even 60, but... We built a lake home in northern Wisconsin that we live in. Unfortunately or fortunately, it's now a, it's a million-dollar home. And how do I estate plan with two daughters to make sure they don't sell? I've worked my whole life, vacation there, now live on a lake. How do I guarantee they don't sell? I hate to see a lifetime work to live on a lake kind of go to waste because eh, maybe they're not, their husbands aren't interested, they're not interested. It's kind of a dilemma. I understand this uh, person's issue. Well, Jim, I guess my question would be, if if it's not your kids, it's, it's your dream, and it's your wife's dream, and, and you get to enjoy it while you're here, but if it's not your kid's dream, 
Why would you burden them with that? Now they do spend a lot of time up there. Oh, yeah. They grew up there as well. Right. So is it a dream or not their dream? I know, but do you put a covenant and say, what is my grandkids' dream? Well, and they were going to, it's hard to buy a lake property anymore, right? It's yeah, not sure. Cheap. So do I protect that and say, if you sell it, I'm going to have a covenant that goes to the rescue squad. Yeah, no, you know, right. No, well, thanks for calling. Look, I understand. Yeah. I mean, look, I guess, I mean, I understand. And there, there's ways you could probably do it. But I guess my reaction is, and, and, and you're not saying, you're not necessarily telling your kids that they have to sell the, the property. But in this case, the person selling, you, you can't. Mom, mom is saying, I, I don't want you to do this and we're going to prevent that. Well, okay. What if, again, what, what if the, the, your, the daughters that decide we, we don't want this or they, they all move away or, you know, whatever. They've got their own homes. I guess, I just, this idea that you want to try to control these things. Now, maybe, hopefully, you're right in your case, that your daughters and their husbands share the the, the love that you have for the, this place, and this is your dream. But I guess my dream is not necessarily, you know, Fran and my dream is not necessarily her kid's dream or not necessarily the grandkid's dreams. Or, or people, you know, things change, all things change and needs change and stuff like that. And just like... I mean, this is just the, the classic carry-on, I think, of that conversation we were having about stuff. Here, I, I want you to take all my stuff, take my furniture, put it in your house. Well, Mom, I've got all the furniture I need. I mean, yeah, give me this thing because it's got sentimental value. Or, yeah, I want my grandfather's, you know, the clock that, that he got when he retired. I want to I keep that. But, no, I, I don't want the furniture that you've had in, in your, your dining room. It, I've got my own dining room set or, or whatever. 855-616-1620. Uh, Dave in Greenfield. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. How you doing, Jeff? Hi, Dave. What do you think? Well, yeah, I kind of agree with those kids because I think some of it probably has to do with they probably grew up in that home. Yeah, sure. And who knows? Maybe they weren't the happiest. Maybe they didn't have the happiest life. That could be part of it. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, thanks for calling. I mean, look, it's even if you loved the house, okay? I mean, I, okay, I, I grew up in Glendale. I loved the house that I grew up in. It was a great home to grow up in. But you know, I, I have my own house. I, I mean, I, I have my own house, and it, it be made it mine. My brother has his own house. For my parents to have said, "Well, we want somebody to to live in here and take care of it and all that," well, it, it's. It it was their house, and it was my house growing up. But I mean, it's I, I I've got different interests and things like that, and and maybe my wife or my brother's wife don't want to they don't want to live and raise their kids in the house where we you know we grew up in. You they they want their own house. I, I guess it's one thing to say, gee, you know, we we want to make this available so that if you or your siblings you know want this, this can continue to stay in the family. That that's one thing. I'm not saying that anybody should necessarily force somebody to sell, but this idea that okay, I'm considering telling that nobody can sell, so this is going to be stuck for you know, the next 30 or 40 years, somebody is going to be responsible for the upkeep on this home, even though, again, what what if all three of the siblings move away? You know, what if, okay, we're not in Washington, the Washington area anymore. Somebody's in Florida and somebody's in California and somebody's in Wisconsin. How how do you end up dealing with this? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Chris in Cedarburg. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you think uh, about this? My dad... Just sold his farm, and um, I'd say within the last six months, and it was horrific. 
Um, Because I always thought that I was going to be the one to take over the farm and do, 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 do. But I'll tell you what, when you found out the aesthetics of the the road construction and they're going to cut the trees down and they're going to enlarge the road Mm -hmm. and all this stuff, you know, it's like, you know what, Um, you know, Pop, uh, let's get you somewhere where you're happy. You can still have your garage sales and stuff, but I get we have to go somewhere else where there's a farm that we can. Pr- we're into preservation, right. so you know it's you know it's not like we want to wreck it, but we have no choice because the uh, highways coming through, yeah. and what do you do? Yeah, I- I- exactly. And it's I mean I think the way you look at it is, hey, this was wonderful. This is a great place to grow up in. We know you. We know you love it. And we have these these wonderful memories, but time moves on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and the memories I have and the pictures I have are fabulous. But you know, you know, like you look in the city, like by Schomburg. Remember all those farms there? Sure. Remember, but where the airport was, and then you know they're gone. Well, this is kind of the way it is, and you you got to take your money and run. Right. No, I mean, exactly. No, no, thanks for the call. There's no question uh, about it. Um, and, and again, I think there's, look, I, I have, I have stuff from my parents' house. And there, there are things, and, and, you know, we had this, this kind of conversation. Is there stuff you want? Yeah, I, I want, I want this clock that my grandfather got when he retired. So I, I got that. My brother got some stuff. We, we have, we have things. I have this little, this little car I had when I was like in fourth and fifth grade, I mean, when I was like four years old, and, and we have that. We bring it up in Christmas time, and my, my, my wife decorates and all. And it's really, really cool. It takes me back. We got a picture of me when I'm like three or four years old in this car. I mean, I, I have th- those recollections. Do I want to be saddled with, with what I've wanted the, the house where I grew up in? Well, no, because I, I didn't want to. It was a wonderful place to grow up in, but it was my parents' house. It wasn't my house. Let's talk to Lynn in Milwaukee. Lynn, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Um, basically calling in, I'm in the same predicament that's causing a family um, strife right now, that the fact that my parents want to leave us their house, it is paid off. Sure. Uh, their house is half the size of my husband and I's house. Um, I kind of consider it a little bit a downgrade. I understand that it is paid off, but I'm just like looking for advice. Am I in the wrong? Are they in the wrong? Why is it being forced on us yeah. <laughs> to take... Um, why can't we sell it? Um, it's causing like such a strife in my family. They're like, well, we're just not going to leave it to you and we'll find somebody else in the family. And I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) So I just don't know if I'm in the wrong to say, you know, sorry, no, I don't want to move into your house once you pass away. Why can't we sell it? Well, well, right. And and it's not that you don't love them. It's not that you don't love the house. It's that you... You, you've already made your own life. You have your own, <laughs> you've got your, your own house. And, you know, yeah. and, and it's like, I, I, I guess, I just think it's, and I'm sure it's very well-intentioned, but I guess I just think this is so incredibly controlling. I mean, I, now I don't have kids, so it's easy for me to say, but, but I mean, from, from my parents, I, I appreciate that they wanted to leave me whatever, but I don't think they have any right to tell me what I have to do with it. And after they're gone, the, the truth is, you know, you know. Who, once I'm gone, you know what you do with my stuff, Lynn, that I leave to you is is up to you. It's kind of like saying, "Hey, I've got this classic car. I'm going to leave it to you, but you got to promise that you're never going to sell it." Well, I, why why would you put that restriction on somebody? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate the topic. It's been something <laughs> weighing on my mind, so I love that it was brought up today, and I'm very interested in listening to the rest of the callers. Got it. Thanks for calling. I mean, no, I don't. I don't think you're you're in. I don't think you're in the wrong at, at all in this type of thing. And again, it's not that the parents are bad guys or anything, but it's again, this ties back in. We we all get attached to our stuff, and and we love it. But you know the 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 China. The China, and again, the house is a different thing, but, but all that China that great grandma had, okay, well, the, the, you know, the granddaughters don't want that anymore. I, I mean, it's just they, they've got their own stuff. And so, yes, there's this sentimental value, but, but if they're never going to use it, why, why make them keep it? Lisa, who's calling us from downtown. Lisa, you're in WTMJ. Hello. I'm uh, a downtown girl, and I love living downtown where I don't have to plow, shovel, or mow, and I have a different lifestyle than my parents, and I think this is such a boomer parent situation. That I think they must be trying to compensate for what they hoped their parents were going to do, um, but, like, I probably make more money than my parents, and I probably, you know, would take that money and use it to to travel. I mean, the lake house thing I do understand, but if you're doing a lake house, you better be putting a trust in place that takes care of it because that's, that's, that could be a burden instead of an asset, you know, with with something that requires that much maintenance and upkeep. So it's got to be this generational thing where these boomer parents are trying to overcompensate for something. Well, I I mean, or it's just, or, or it's just kind of the controlling thing, but just because I love something just because I love my just because I love my place in Florida doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, our our, our kids or the grandkids are going to necessarily love that. So why would you say, OK, you, you've got to keep this. It's my dream. Uh, maybe like our last caller was the, the, a couple of calls ago, the guy with the lake house. That's his dream. God bless him. Live the dream. Share it with family and stuff. But if the family doesn't share that, why would you ha- put handcuffs on them requiring the, the kids or the grandkids or whatever to have this place that they don't have any interest in? Totally. Yeah, no, I'm with you. No, thanks. Yeah, and, for, and yeah. a lot of- Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say- Go ahead. So I was to say, this, that generation also likes to stay in one place forever. You know, a lot of us love to continue to upgrade and grow. We're not necessarily tied to our family house for yeah. our whole lives. So yeah, I, no, thanks for calling. Maybe they would be. And again, I'm not. And I'm not. This is a nice thing for the family to do. I mean, I get it. Mom and Dad say we have paid off this house. Here is the deal. We want to leave it to you so you don't have to worry. If you don't want to live in apartments anymore, you don't have to worry about this. Here we, we have th- this house and you can raise, you know, the next generation of kids. I, I get it. That, that's a well-intended thing. But to then say you have to do this, that's where I guess I have the issue. So I guess I think it's um, I, I don't I, I think that the parents it, they they can make that request. They can say this is what's there for. But at the end of the day, once they're gone, they're gone, and you have to let the next generation do what they want. Back with more in just a minute, Jeff Wagner. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, a lot of people texting in with reactions. Jeff, when my parents die. My sister my, died. My sister stayed on in the house, bought my half. Both of us were happy. Absolutely. And, and there's, I mean, I'm not saying you have to sell the house. I'm, the, the story was the, the kids didn't want the house, and mom was saying that you have to, you have to end up keeping it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that's the issue that was there. 
One of our texters uh, talks about how, Jeff, my wife and I just got rid of the china and precious moments that our parents left us. Felt kind of bad, but we didn't want them. <laughs> well, that's 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 kind of the issue. And I, I mean, I wonder how many people in in their basements or their attics have stuff that they got from their grandparents, from their parents, that's been sitting there in, in boxes unused for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, and are thinking, well, you know, when we move or we die, we're going to give this stuff, we're going to give our stuff to our kids. And the truth is, you really didn't want it when you got it from your mom and dad, and your kids probably don't really want it. Anyways, it, it's a, it's at least a conversation to have. What of our stuff do you want? And if you don't want the house, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with this. This, you know, there's the, the initials, you know, TMI, too much information. I am always amazed that people sometimes feel this need to share, even when nothing good can come of this. Teresa Thompson, know who she is? She's, um, if you, she, she works for Fox Sports and she's on Amazon Prime's Thursday night football. And she's one of the, the commentators and things like that. And then like on Thursday night football on Amazon, they, they've got a panel and she's, she's one of the, like the moderators and stuff. And she's been covering sports for, you know, the, the last couple decades. Now, one of the things that, that's really been an issue over the last couple decades is, and it's starting to change a little bit, but there has been a glass ceiling with regard to women. It was very, very tough for women to get jobs as play-by-play announcers or things like that. The role of, of women a lot of times covering professional sports, uh, especially on TV, was you're going to be the the attractive woman, the sideline reporter. You know, that that's that for years and years, that's what the role was. It's going to be the guys that are doing the play-by-play, and we're going to find some attractive-looking woman, and we're going to put her on the sidelines, and she's going to interview the coach, you know, before the game and interview a couple of the players after the game and all those sorts of things. So it's been very, very difficult for women to, to break through that, that glass ceiling, but things are starting to change. All right, so the, the huge controversy, and if you haven't seen it, you will if you watch sports this weekend. So Carissa Thompson was a sideline reporter in about 20 years ago. I mean, that's how she got her start. For reasons that pass understanding, she goes on a podcast recently, and she says, um, well, when I was a sideline reporter... I would frequently make up reports. So, you know, in other words, like after halftime, they, they cut to her and she says, I, I talked, I talked to Coach Wagner and Coach Wagner said that the team needs to play better and he wants to get the def- defense to be a little more aggressive or whatever. She, you know, that, that was it. Well, she never talked to Coach Wagner. She would make up the reports and she shares this on the podcast. I've said this before, and I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. I would make up a report sometimes because, A, the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or it was too late, and I didn't want to screw up the report, so I was like, I'm just going to make this up. Thompson added that she assumed that no coach is going to get mad if she lied to viewers by telling them that, um, you know, that they had said something when they didn't. She said, hey, I, I just... 
I, I've simply said some well-worn cliches like, hey, we need to stop hurting ourselves. We need to be better on third down. We need to start turning the ball over, do a better job of getting off the field. And she said, well, I, I knew if I said that stuff, they weren't going to correct me on it. So I'm like, I'm fine. I'll just make up this report. Why in God's green earth, if you were doing it, you would feel compelled to share it? is absolutely beyond me because now you you will hear about this this weekend there's this huge outrage especially among all these other female reporters who are going look we, we've been trying for years and years to break through this glass ceiling and now you have this woman who's saying hey i was lying about it i lied about it all the time i didn't think that there was any big deal I, i'm making up I'm making up quotes. I'm making up stories. And what's the big deal? I mean, it's just that I'm just quoting cliches. I knew the coaches wouldn't get mad at me. The the reaction to this has been an absolute firestorm. Column in, you know, USA Today, Charissa Thompson saying she made up sideline reports is a bigger problem than you think. Um, another story in USA Today, Andrea Kramer, Tracy Wolfson, other sports journalists criticize her. There's another story I'm looking at um, people calling for her to be fired. That's in The Athletic, saying this has just done a huge amount of damage to TV journalists in general, but women in particular, because it just plays into all these stereotypes. Why Why, why do you need to hire somebody to be a sideline reporter? Or this is, I mean, the argument would be, is to do all the women who are doing this and the people who are, like, running around and trying to get the stories, they're, they're just... They're absolutely appalled by this because it makes them look bad as well. To me, the, the takeaway, I guess, isn't that, isn't that she did it, which I, I think is unacceptable. I mean, if, if you're a reporter, to make up quotations, regardless of how innocuous it might be, well, I don't care whether you're a TV reporter or a radio reporter or a newspaper reporter, if you're making up quotations, that to me is a fireable offense. You know, that, that just that just is that's that goes to the heart of journalism. But to me, the story isn't that she did it. It's the fact that she decided to talk about it and you know, go on, go on a podcast and say, yeah, I, I made all this stuff up. I mean, it's what back in another life we used to call felony dumb. I mean, seriously, nobody would have presumed if she would have kept her mouth shut. This wouldn't have been a controversy. Now you've got, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know if she's going to get fired or not. But, you know, she's never going to be viewed the same by her peers and by people who realize this. I mean, it's just like, okay, if you did it 15 years ago and you got away with it, shut the heck up. <laughs> but but we feel this need to share. We were talking in the last segment about maybe boomer parents, one of these controls. No, just if you got away with it, and I'm not endorsing it, but if you got away with it, shut up. Instead of here, I've got to share all this. And now she might very well be out of the job, out of a job and perhaps find it difficult to get another one, all because she couldn't keep her trap shut. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. So one of our texters says, well, what was she supposed to say, supposed to say to get on the air? To simply say, well, the coach put me off again. I have no report. Okay. Um... Okay, so the alternative is, so I'm going to lie about it? I mean, okay, how, how far is that going to get you? Let's take it out of the sports journalism thing. So your boss comes to you and says, hey, did you, uh, you were supposed to call that, uh, that car dealer. 
you know, and, and get get an appointment um, for, you know, get an appointment for Friday. And then you say, and then you don't do it, but you tell your boss, oh, yeah, you don't make the call for whatever reasons. Yeah, I, I, I called them, and, and yeah, we're, we're all set for the appointment. Or I, I called them, and they said no. Okay, well, and then your boss finds out that you never made the call. You're going to be out on the street. And, and yes, you, I mean, look, I understand it's an uncomfortable position when the producer says, okay, you know, what did Coach Wagner say to you? And then you have to tell the producer, eh, he blew me off or I couldn't get an interview, so they don't go to you. And, and maybe maybe you're going to get yelled at later on for not being aggressive enough or something. That's entirely possible. But you, especially... If you're a journalist, you can't lie about the thing. Here, yeah, I just made this all up, and I figured nobody would catch me. No, you, you can't make that up. That's the cardinal sin of journalism, just making stuff up. Yeah, I, I know I was supposed to um, – I know I needed to get a hold of the mayor to get a quotation on this story, but I knew how the mayor was going to respond, so I just – I just I just responded in his place, you know, and I figured I I just made it up. I never made that call. Okay, that that's trust me. That is not a recipe for success when it comes to journalism. Lying about stuff is never a recipe for success, period. And I don't know how she weathers the storm. But again, my larger point is it's not just lying about it. It's feeling the need to share it with everybody years after the fact. Felony dumb. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. It really is the end of an era. Um, the Oakland Athletics, for people who might have missed it from baseball perspective, uh, the Major League Baseball, the owners, unanimously approved this week uh, the move of the Oakland Athletics. Uh, they're, they're moving from Oakland, and they're going to be going to Las Vegas. There's one more year left on the lease they have at the Oakland Coliseum, which has been it, it's been just a train wreck for for decades. So this will probably be the last year. Their new stadium in Vegas isn't going to be ready till 2028. So there's all these issues about where they're going to pay play. But but they're they're leaving. Um, the Golden State Warriors left Oakland. You know they used to play in, in Oakland and they they left a few years back. The Oakland Raiders, of course, they're now in Las Vegas. It is interesting that the 10th largest market in the country is now not going to have a football team, not going to have a baseball team. They they don't have a basketball team per se. The team's on the other side of the uh, San Francisco Bay. But um, for all those of us who remember the glory years of the Oakland Athletics and things like that, that era has come to an end. In the next hour of the program, new poll results make something self-evident Some of you will not want to hear it. And the most polarizing food for Thanksgiving. I'll tell you what it is, and we will discuss. Don't go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. That is the takeaway from the, the Thursday night game. And I was watching part of this. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I actually I saw this when it happened. It was between Cincinnati and, and Baltimore. And Joe Burrow, who is the the is he the high he might he might be the highest paid quarterback in football, or if not, very close to it. Um top two or three. Top two or three, yeah. And um he's he's out for the year. Um apparently he suffered a torn ligament in his right wrist. I, I saw it. It kind of happened. And I saw him, you know, walk off the field and he was like, you know, working on his wrist and moving his fingers and stuff like that. But the, the interesting thing is apparently he, he needs surgery to repair a torn ligament. 
But the interesting thing is, apparently, before the game, uh, the Bengals had posted this video on Twitter. I still can't get used to calling it X, but on, on Twitter, uh, of Burrow getting off the team bus what appear, wearing what appeared to be a soft cast on his right hand. And then so everybody was going, hey, did this, you know, did this guy have the injury or whatever? Then they later deleted the post. And if you watch the game, it, it did appear that he was kind of hampered by th- this injury. It, it, it didn't, so it didn't look like, I mean, I at least didn't see something dramatic that happened that, that, a play. So the, the question is, had this guy have this injury all along and things like that? But there, there's no question that the Bengals, um, they, they were five and five, but a lot of people thought that they had the potential to go pretty far. But I think it would be fair to say that the, New York Jets without Aaron Rodgers are, are probably going nowhere, and the Cincinnati Bengals without Joe Burrow are probably going nowhere. But, of course, the scandal is going to be, was he hurt, and did they try to cover it up or whatever? This goes to this larger point, and I know we don't talk about sports that often, but I hate Thursday night football games. I, and and I hear me out. I, I understand. Why do they have Thursday night football games? Because, in this case, it's Amazon Prime pays the NFL a ton of money to do it. So, I mean, I get it. It's all about the dollars. Thursday night football games, to me, they're, they're almost always awful because, I mean, the truth is, you know, th- there is a routine to football, and, and it's it's not like baseball or even basketball where you, you don't have all that contact. I mean, you know, football, I mean, day, play after play after play, you've got 240, 250, 300-pound guys running full speed, colliding into each other. It's got, and I never played professional football, I never played college football, but, I mean, it, it's got to be just murder on your body and you're used to a certain recovery period so you play on sunday then you got to turn around and play on thursday you your body just doesn't have the time to recuperate as a general rule these games are awful because that the teams don't have the time to game plan you go right from the sunday game and then you you have to give the players a day off and then you have to do preparation and it's very difficult i mean the games are sloppy they're awful as a general rule and I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, I, I think you have a lot of catastrophic injuries that you find on these Thursday night games because there's just not enough recovery time. There's just not enough turnaround time. So I, I, I understand we as fans want to see the games, and I understand that the owners of the NFL and the players, too, I mean, everybody wants as much money as they have, as, as they can generate, because if the networks pay more money to the teams, uh, they can pay more money to the players, but the only way you do that is by having more games. But these Thursday night games, to me, they're almost always dog games, and they're, uh, again, um, you, you have, I think, this huge potential for injury. Now, I don't know that that happened necessarily with Burrow, but you do have to wonder, um, and, and, I mean, I don't know, but if the guy had, I don't know, if he had a minor injury, did he make it worse by coming out and playing three days later or something like that? I mean, these are all valid questions that are there, but I, I'm I'm not surprised when you see, okay, more star players injured, you know, Thursday night football. So from the perspective of the NFL, yeah, you, you got the short-term boost because you, you got the Thursday night football game, but now you have one of your stars who, who's gone for the rest of the season. And for all intents and purposes, probably the end of the Cincinnati Bengals season. Oh, they're going to still play the games, but yeah, but when, when you lose that player, you lose him. Okay, tough love. Tough love. Okay, tough love. Here's the reality. From the perspective of a conservative, 
I want to win the presidency in 2024. All right. I, I don't. I, Joe Biden, in my opinion, has been Jimmy Carter redo. He is too old to be the president moving forward. I want a new generation of leadership and I want to win. I do not believe that Donald Trump can win the general election. He lost in 2020. He won in 2016, but that was a fluke. And I think it was dictated more by the fact that lots of people just didn't like Hillary Clinton and Trump was the unknown alternative that, that came in. Everything fell right for him and he narrowly won a couple swing states, but people didn't like the chaos. And a lot of people, especially suburban voters, particularly suburban women, just got tired of him, didn't vote for him. And I am afraid that the same thing is going to happen again. Also, I mean, the truth of the matter is, since Trump left office in 2020, there's been, you know, one crisis after another. There was the behavior that he exhibited leading up to January 6th, which, whether you think it's criminal or not, is still, I think, objectively conduct unbecoming somebody who wants to be the leader of the free world. I just think that's the reality. And for everybody who says, well, I, I like Trump's policies better than Biden, you, you, you can get Trump's policies without having to have Trump. That's just the truth. You, you don't need this this cult that's there. If you want to find if you want to find it, Ron DeSantis represents that. Nikki Haley represents that. You can have these policies without having all the baggage. But the biggest thing to me is that the baggage is just such that he can't win. And I, I, it's so frustrating to me that some people just don't see that. And I, look, and I understand some people think all oh, these criminal trials are a witch hunt and all this type of stuff. Does, doesn't matter. You, you may be right. You may be wrong. Doesn't matter. As a practical matter, I want to win. And if you want to win, the door is there. It's easy. All you have to do, Republican voters, is walk through that door. Marquette University just came out with a nationwide poll. This is not Wisconsin. Now, let me say at the beginning, the presidential election, in many respects, these nationwide polls are are, are useless because we don't select a president by a, a popular vote of the country. We select the president, of course, by you know individual states and the Electoral College. That's why you want to pay attention to what's going on. There's only a handful of states that are at play in any given election. That's just kind of the reality. So you want to look at what's going on in some of these states, Michigan being one, Wisconsin being one, Nevada being another, you know, a handful of states that could go either way that are ultimately going to decide the election. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter who the Republican candidate is, Texas is going to go Republican. Doesn't matter who the Democrat candidate is, California and New York State, they're going Democrat. So in many respects, like again, the national polls, take them with a grain of salt because that's not how we elect the president. But they are instructive. So the Marquette University Law School poll comes out. This is the national poll. And they do the head-to-head numbers. Now here's just the reality that you need to listen to. Tough love here. So they do the poll and they say, okay, nationwide, Biden, Trump. Who do you vote for among, let me see, among the registered voters, among the registered voters, and what you want to do is you want to look at likely voters, but under registered voters, Trump leads Biden 52 to 48. Okay, so that's slightly within the margin of error, but but he, he's ahead. Okay, that that's good. 
DeSantis leads Biden 51 to 49. That's within the margin of error. So in both of these cases, it's a very, very close race. Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, she leads Biden among registered voters 55 to 45. She's killing Biden across the country for a wide variety of reasons. Republican voters. Here's the truth of the matter. If you want to see a Republican elected president in 2024, Republican voters voting for Donald Trump is like a turkey voting for Thanksgiving. It's just a suicide mission. Now, okay, maybe Trump could squeeze in, but the prop, the point is, why not find somebody who is an alternative who is going to win in a landslide? That's why a lot of Democrats, their biggest fear, their biggest fear is that Trump doesn't get the nomination because with all the baggage that Trump has, et cetera, et cetera, they, they realize it's going to be tough for him to win. And who knows what his legal situation is? He could be a convicted felon by that point in time. And I understand that's not going to make a difference between maybe 30 percent of the electorate, but it is going to make a difference between a lot of those swing voters that you need. Nikki Haley takes all that off the table. And it's very, very clear that she has emerged as the alternative that pretty much, look, we're a year away from the election. So I understand that lots of stuff can happen. But at this point in time, you've got two candidates who are deeply flawed, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, two candidates who are deeply flawed. And then you've got alternatives. And in this case, the, the most viable alternative is Nikki Haley, who wins big time. It's one of the reasons I have been saying that I continue to believe that by the time the election rolls around a year from now, neither Trump or Biden are going to be the nominee. Because what I think is going to happen is I think, you know, Nikki Haley, quite candidly, at this point in time, she's going to emerge. She's going to overhaul Trump. And then the Democrats are going to realize that Biden can't beat her and they're going to be switching to an alternative. I don't know who that plan B might be, whether it's Kamala Harris or whether it's uh, Newsom, the governor of California or whatever. But I, I can firmly believe that. But. But you look at these poll numbers, and I understand there's some people who roll their eyes and don't believe polls. But if you want to win, the number, it is so obvious, it is so clear, the alternative is there. And, see, I've always, I've always said I, I want to find the most conservative candidate who can win. And that, to me, is clearly Nikki Haley. So wake up, Republican voters, for goodness sakes. The answer is there. The light at the end of the tunnel is there. Now, if it's Donald Trump, that light is a train coming the other way. If it's Nikki Haley, it's the way to the White House. People just got to realize it. I know some people don't like to hear it, but, you know, I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm telling you what you need to hear. All right. When we come back, the most polarizing Thanksgiving food we'll discuss. Okay, so next Thursday... We will go over the river through the woods to grandmother's house or sister's house or brother's house or grandkids' house or whatever for Thanksgiving dinner. I love everything about Thanksgiving. I love the football games on Thanksgiving. I love getting together with family and friends. I love sitting around and I, I love, I love turkey. I love gravy on turkey. Give me a big old bowl of mashed potatoes. Love that. Pumpkin pie. I'm. I look. If you're a regular listener's program, you know that I, I go nuts about the overuse of pumpkin. Pumpkin beer is just an offense to nature. But but pumpkin pie 
on Thanksgiving, bring it on. You you, you got to just love that. So I, I love rolls and all those types of things that come with it. There's one thing, one of the many reasons I was probably a disappointment to my father. There is one thing, and it is it is generally regarded as the most polarizing food on Thanksgiving. Most polarizing food, and it's it, it, green bean casserole could be one. But no, besides green bean pet casserole, it is generally recognized as the most polarizing food on Thanksgiving. Give you a couple seconds to think about what it is. Do you know what it is, Sam? The most polarizing food on Thanksgiving that people either love it or hate it? All right. Mac and cheese? No, 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 not mac and cheese. Everybody loves mac and cheese. Cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce. Charlie's going, he knew it. I can see cranberry sauce. Cran and you know, cranberry sauce, whether it's you know, that that the canned stuff that from ocean spray that you know you take it out of the can, it's kind of like that that jellied thing that kind of looks like jello and blobs up and down. The the way the Wall Street Journal describes it is that the cylindrical blob of sweet glistening ruby tartness that has become synonymous with Thanksgiving. Um, you know, they say you know it, you love it, or you hate it. In which case, maybe use homemade sauce cooked with the trillions of can- cranberries. But cranberries, cranberry sauce, like the stuff from Ocean Spray or cranberries, it's just, it is a staple of, of Thanksgiving tables. And and having said that, I'm in this category of one of these people that I just don't get it. I, I mean, I, I and I'm not anti-cranberry. I, I, cranberry juice, okay. Cranberry like you muffins, you know. I was at a Panera the other day. They had cranberry muffins. I that that's fine. I'm not. I am not anti cranberry, but there's something about the consistency of cranberry sauce, that blob of stuff, which just turns me off. And so, and again, I I appreciate that I am probably in the distinct minority here because I know when we sit around the Thanksgiving table, there's going to be passing the cranberry sauce and everybody's going to say, well, try this, try that, try whatever. And I'm always like, no, I I don't, this isn't my thing. Our number, one segment quickly, 855-616-1620. Oh, stuffing. Some people are saying stuffing controversy. Oh, I could, I could, I could eat a whole bowl of stuffing. I mean, stovetop stuffing. Okay, this is what my wife will say sometimes, you know, what do you want for dinner? I say, how about we get pork chops? And say, okay, and then do you want stove? And I, and I want stuffing. Well, you know, we're, we're trying to watch your carbs and stuff. You know, you can't, you got to be careful with that. Oh, I want the stuffing. No, I could eat a whole bowl of stuffing. That's not controversial. Cranberry sauce, I just don't get it. But yet at the same time, I understand that for lots of people, it's not Thanksgiving unless you have it. 855-616-1620. All right. Cranberry sauce, it is described as Thanksgiving's most polarizing food. Where are you on the issue? One of the breath pressing issues of the day. We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff. Jeff, I believe one of the 22 guests at my Thanksgiving table actually likes cranberry sauce, but my great-grandmother told us it was good luck, so we all have a piece of the can-shaped food on the table. It's very, very polar. And look, if you love it, I, I don't mind that. And I'm not anti-cranberry. It's just I don't get the cranberry sauce. Jody, who's uh, calling us in a car phone. Hi, Jody. Hi. All right, cranberry sauce. What do you think? I don't like anything that's out of a jar, the gelatin style. But my mom makes it from scratch where she actually grinds the cranberries. <laughs> and then she puts, like, an orange rind and sugar but it's, it's kind of almost like a chutney type thing. Okay. But it's not, 
Nothing out of a can. I won't eat the canned stuff at all. Right. So you're you're not running to pick and save and grabbing that can of ocean spray and just like putting it out on the platter. That's not happening at your house. No, mine's homemade. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for the call. Let's talk to Michelle in Grafton. Michelle, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Well, you know, I, I agree with her. Yeah, my mom made homemade cranberry sauce, but it was hot. Um, and she took the cranberries and cooked them down and added the sugar. And then you ladled it on the um, dressing. And so it was hot. And the consistency was like a sweet tart, tartness, you know, um, which what really well, it kind of cut that fatty, okay. fatty nature up and made the white not so dry. Okay. So no, no, good. No, good. Thanks for calling me. Okay. So, I mean, maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's just, maybe it's, I just haven't had that good homemade stuff. Jeff, for many years, I couldn't stand cranberry sauce. My wife watched a thing on the Food Channel and made cranberry sauce from cranberries. Everybody loved it. It doesn't taste anything like what my mom used to bring out of the can. The most important thing that it was made with fresh cranberries, and my wife said it was easy to make. Jeff, I don't get cranberry sauce either. I've tried to like it, but I don't. <laughs> um, you know, there, there you go. Uh, and again, I, it's, I don't begrudge this. Um, Jeff, no to jellied cranberry blob. Yes to homemade cranberry relish. Finely chopped, fresh cranberries with grated orange rind, pulp, and a little sugar. To me, that's yum. Okay, well, invite me over to your place. I mean, that's that's good. Always looking for the homemade stuff. All right, I'm late for this. When we come back, it is that time of the week. We only have, by my count, four more of these. Only four more of these because we're not doing it on my last day. Four more pop culture corners. It's right around the corner. Gather round all. It's time for Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Time to put aside the heavy lifting and have a good time at the old National Bank talking text line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's Jeff Wagner. It is that time of the week. We're down to our, our final couple. We've got four more pop culture corners, including today. And then my final show, December 15th, it's a Friday, but we're not going to do pop culture corner. I've got some special stuff planned for that last show. All right. So what we're doing is we're kind of revisiting some of my favorite topics over over the years based on stuff that, that's going on. And, okay, so here's how I spent a couple hours last evening. Um, I, I got Netflix. And Netflix just dropped the first half of season six of of The Crown, and it, it's I, I've I've watched the first five seasons of this, and it's the story of um, of Queen Elizabeth, and it starts it starts when she became the queen as a young girl, and it follows her through, and I found it to be a pretty interesting, um, especially it, it it touches on some like aspects of British history that I really didn't know about, or at least I'd heard about, but gives you some insight from the 50s and 60s. More recently, The Crown has become a little more soap opera-y. Last season focused on the marriage of Charles to Diana, and the first four episodes, and they dropped four episodes yesterday, and there's another six coming up in mid-December, but the first four episodes of this year that all dropped at once focus on the, the death of Princess Diana. And the first three episodes that I watched last night are all, it, it's it's really kind of very, very soapy. It picks up right in the, the immediately before her death and the, the, the weeks and stuff before that. And, and like the third episode is their in, envisioning of, of what happened that day that she ended up dying. The, the fourth episode that I was going to watch, but I fell asleep. It was like 1130 at night. And I admit, I, I'd been up since five in the morning. I fell asleep. 
but I, I'm going to watch it when I get home this afternoon. So it, it was it was good. It was kind of soapy and stuff, but it was it was good, and I enjoyed it. So I binged watch that. One of the great things that's available now with entertainment and streaming is you can engage in this binge watching. You can say, oh, they've just dropped the crown. I've got three hours of my life. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch this. Or over the weekend, you know, I've been hearing them talk a lot about Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or whatever. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit the next week of my life, all my spare time, to I'm going on to Netflix or HBO Max or whatever and saying, I'm going to stream these shows. 855-616-1620. That is the, um, all na- the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. Binge-worthy television. You get to watch one show. All right. Over the holidays, maybe you have off on, on Friday the, after Thanksgiving, looking at a long weekend. All right. So you're sitting there thinking, you know, maybe there's a show that I've heard about that everybody talks about that I want to watch. Maybe it's a show that, okay, I want to I want to binge this because I've got some time. I want to go back and see this. So I'm going to revisit it. But if you've got some time over the upcoming like Thanksgiving holiday, my question is, what is the most binge-worthy TV show that is out there? 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. And as always, courtesy of our friends at Palermo's Pizza, we have um, we have our, our Palermo's Pizza prize package. One caller in the exclusive discretion of my producer, Aaron, in exclusive discretion, wins our Palermo's Pizza prize package, which is... Uh, coupon good for a couple frozen pizzas and this really cool uh, pizza cutter. You know, before I leave, I might try to figure out a way to sneak off with one of those pizza cutters and, you know, a bag with some other stuff as well. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. The most binge-worthy television show that's out there. If you've got some time this weekend, what you would recommend somebody watch? It could be a comedy. It could be a drama. Um... You know, one of the ones that I, I, I'm thinking about, Band of Brothers is the HBO thing that, that, that follows, um, Easy Company through World War II. That's, it's very, very good. I've seen that on a number of occasions, but I, I did see that, uh, I think it was on Netflix as I was watching The, The Crown. I, I did see that they, they've now got The Pacific, which is the, it's the counterpoint to Band of Brothers. It's the war in the Pacific. And and I saw that. I don't think it's as good as Band of Brothers, but I'm thinking maybe I'll give that another chance. 855-616-1620. Jeff, check out the offer. It's about the making of the movie The Godfather. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's on Paramount. I binged that last year because I'm, of course, a huge movie buff, and I love The Godfather. That was that was very good. I don't know how true it is, but I thought it was very good. Betty texts in and says, Danton, uh, Danton Abbey. I watched, okay, this was one where my wife and I decided we were going to watch a bunch t- together. And um, then she just kind of passed me by. I was working or something, and she started watching them all. So I only watched the first, like, season or two. But I know Downton Abbey gets just an, an incredible amount. Jeff, I've only ever binged one TV show, Friday Night Lights. I absolutely loved it. Jeff, for me, it's Peaky Blinders on uh, Netflix. Yes, I, that's like seven seasons. It's about, it's set in England right after po- World War One. It's, it's a very adult show with lots of violence, but I like Peaky, Vi- uh, Peaky Blinders. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. I think I, this holiday season, I am going to do Better Call Saul 
and then Breaking Bad in that order, oh. as opposed to the other way that we're all used to watching. Did you now? You've seen Better Call Saul, right? You you watched it when it was on regularly. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's you know it's <clears throat> it's interesting. I thought you know normally that the sequels and stuff they they don't they don't hold up, but Better Call Saul, which was the prequel to to Breaking Bad. Uh, I mean, which was the, the sequel to Breaking Bad. I I thought that was really really good, and I you know I, I haven't seen it since it's first aired. But that's that's not a bad idea. That would be definitely one that I'd watch. Bob Odenkirk is just great in that role. Yeah, he's really good, and I also really like the the Mike Herman trial character who's oh, right. in it quite a bit too. Yeah, Jonathan Banks. No, thanks for the call. No question, that was great. Let's uh, see. Let's talk to Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, binge worthy TV. Good afternoon. You're not going to believe this, Jeff, but Perry Mason. Okay, the old Perry Mason with Raymond Burr, or like the new variation of Perry Mason that they have um, that they've been showing on uh, no, HBO. No, the old, the old, old Perry Mason. Okay, you know, we're younger. Okay, I, uh, kind of just enjoy how he puts things together after a while. Well, right. Okay, thanks for it's okay. fun. You know, it's been. I have not seen that, but I, I do want to also encourage people. Um, I, th- I think it's 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 HBO or whatever they call that now. They've had two seasons of. Of a of a, it's it's a Perry Mason prequel, and it's the, the guy from uh, oh from the the um, FX show where he played the Russian spy, um, Jonathan Rice Davis, I think. You know he he plays Perry Mason, and it it starts off before Perry Mason is a lawyer, or he becomes a lawyer, and it's actually they've had two years, and it's been very very it's been very very good. It drew me in eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, for me, you got to check it out on Hulu. What We Do in Shadows, it's an absolutely hilarious take on vampires. I have seen that promoted and advertised. I've never watched it, but there's, um, you know, no question. It, it looks it looks like it would be very entertaining. Yeah, a number of people are mentioning uh, Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. I've never watched Yellowstone, and I understand I, I'm behind I'm behind the pop culture curve on this, and this is always one that sometime this winter, Sometime this winter when I'm sitting around and I've got some time, I, I am Yellowstone is definitely one of the things that I am going to binge. Jeff, you're thinking about the Americans. It was originally on FX. It's the drama spy thrill about Russians in the 80s. Yeah, the guy who starred in the Americans, he plays Perry Mason in the HBO version of this. But the Americans would be another um, show that I think would be excellent to um, binge on. To that point, let's talk to Jim and Jackson. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi Jeff. I just wanted to recommend the Americans. Also, I when I saw it originally aired on FX, I uh, watched it when I could. On I believe it aired on Sunday nights, and I watched the whole thing. Rented the DVDs and watched the whole thing over. Uh, I guess you just described what it was all about. Yeah. KGB agents living in Washington. One of the best series I ever saw in recent years. Yeah, he's great in it, and his uh, real life wife is in it too, Carrie Russell, and they're, they're both right. just yeah, out. They are married. Yeah, they're both outstanding. No, thanks. To, it, it's it's the Americans. I, I, I watched the first couple years of it, and then I, I watched the end of it. But I, I kind of there's a couple seasons that I sort of I sort of missed. But I, I think it's definitely worth going back for. Um, let's see, eight five five six one six one six twenty. Um, let's see. Now again, a couple of people mentioned the Vampire Show. What we do. In the shadows, a couple people are mentioning, you know, Downton Abbey. That's again, it's it's good. Shameless, yeah, Shameless with um, Bill Macy. Um, I it was a, a Showtime show 
and it was based on a, a show, a similar sort of show that was in Britain. The Showtime one ran like seven or eight years, and, and that's you, you can watch that now. That's, that's again, it's a binge-worthy sort of thing. It's one of these ones that you watch it, and you feel kind of guilty that you are laughing about. Um, okay, this is the one that my wife is watching, my friend Patty is watching, and a couple of my other friends are watching Suits. Now, Suits has had just this complete and total renaissance. Um, you know, Suits is the one, Meghan Markle, who is now married into royalty. You know, she's in that. And um, I, I did not watch Suits when it was first on. It's a, it's kind of like L.A. Law, but uh, I think a little more a little more dramatic than that. It's the like a more modern version of that. People tell me, as a recovering lawyer, I would love to see Suits. But there's, you know, there, there's no question that that would be definitely one that would be there. Okay, let's talk to Dave and Racine. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Greetings, Jeff. Uh, I'm a rather old school, and I like the old Twilight films, the original uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Oh, or not Night Gallery, but, the original uh, the one was Twilight, Rod Serling, Rod, yeah. Because uh, they just hold, the writing was so damn good. I mean, there was like, and a lot of them are like modern-day allegories. Yeah. You know, Alex, that uh, even that are still pressing today, like the one with Dennis Hopper as a modern-day neo-Nazi well, for the time, and but he actually gets to see what the Nazis really yeah. would like, and that would be you know, a, you know, right. kind of interesting if you had it with the modern-day Islamo-Nazis. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, it's interesting, Dave. You know, I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of the zones too, um, and you know, Rod Serling was just so brilliant, and and of course. One of the things, if you look at a lot of the stories, he's he's using science fiction a, as a way to comment on things that were going on in the 50s and, and the 60s. But by, by using, again, you were using the phrase allegory, and you're exactly right. By using that, you know, it, you, maybe, maybe you couldn't write about the civil rights movement, but, you know, without getting all sorts of heat. But you could, you know, put a science fiction, you know, spin on this, and everybody goes, that's cool. Okay, let's talk to um, Aretha in Waukesha. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I am well. Okay, if I got some time this weekend, I got to binge watch a show, what's it going to be? Ted Lasso. Okay, on Apple. On Apple. You, you're a big fan of the show, yeah. huh? Oh, my God, that was so awesome. That was a series that I could, a sitcom that I could watch again and again and again. Good field uh, comedy, but the story, the underline, the love, the caring for people, the forgiveness, all of that is what this world needs. They need more of that show. Well, it's funny, Aretha, you should mention because I've seen, okay, I, I watched the first two seasons and I just, I haven't seen the third season. I mean, I have rough ideas to how it ends, but that's definitely on my binge list to catch up. And I love the first two seasons of that. I'm, I'm a soccer fan. I mean, I just love it. Aretha, you are the winner of our Palermo's Pizza Prize Package. So I, I know you're going to have turkey for Yay! Thanksgiving, but you're going to have turkey for Thanksgiving, but enjoy a couple frozen pizzas on WTMJ over the weekend, okay? Oh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for calling. Thanks for, for participating. Okay, let me just do a couple others. Um, Ray Donovan, yeah, that was on Showtime. Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. Yeah, I, that's they've had two seasons. I, I'm a big fan of the Lincoln Lawyer books by Michael um, Con, Conway. Um, check, I always get him and Pat Conroy confused. Michael Conway. Um, but check out Lincoln Lawyer. That's great. The Bear on Hulu. Yeah, they've had um, a couple seasons of, of that. And there's no question that that's outstanding. Um, 
Let's see. Ah, it's kind of fun. Um, my, uh, Mind Hunter. I'm not familiar with that one. Anyhow, um, lots of stuff that is out there. Jeff Lupin on Netflix, a French show. Season three was recently released. Okay, here's the bottom line. There's a lot of great stuff that's out there. Um, Band of Brothers. Somebody mentions Band of Brothers is just absolutely great. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, watch it. it acting is tremendous, um, and it's a true story. Don talks about the House of Cards, which is um, that was with Kevin Spacey, and, and and it's based on an original British drama that ran three years. Watch the British one. I actually think the British one's better than the American one, but they're all good. Okay, whatever it is, enjoy yourself. That's the great thing that's out there. And thank you for participating in Pop Culture Corner this week. We've still got a couple more left before I leave. Right now, let's take a quick break, and then we'll find out what John McCure and Greg Matzik have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news.